Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. It turns out <laughs> that there's a little more to sexuality and gender than the penis. And, and, and that's really kind of the whole gist of things is <laughs> there's just a little more to it than that. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, when you kind of say it like that, it's kind of like, well, yeah. But, but we've kind of developed this whole thing around this one little organ. Like, that's all there is to it. That's it. But, you know, um, you take one look and you're done. One look and you're done. That's it. For sure. Um, but the reality is that on the inside of us, there is so much stuff going on. Welcome to Queer Relation Tips. My name is Isaac Archuleta. As I've scrolled through social media and various news outlets in recent weeks, I cannot believe my eyes. The various anti-LGBTQIA laws and proposals in Florida, Idaho, Indiana, and Texas spin me up in a whirlwind of angst and anger. It seems as though more fear has been lurking under our social political surface than we imagined, and now it's all surfacing. What I'm seeing seems to indicate that there is a serious lack in education around what sexual orientation and gender identity really are, not as expressions to be observed, but as medical phenomena to be known. To empower you with information and confidence, I've invited Dr. Joni Jack to share with us what research has proven about human sexuality and gender identity. It is my hope that after today's episode, you feel proud and equipped to navigate a faltering political system. I'm very excited about today's episode. Let's take a listen. Yeah, so I am a uh, general pediatrician, um, and uh, I've had a, a fairly diverse career, I would say, in that um, my career hasn't been incredible entirely typical. Uh, my uh, daily career right now is in um, childhood obesity. Um, and so uh, in my clinic, uh, I often see the kids that are marginalized um, in many different ways. Um, and so, um, so I guess perhaps that's partially what led me into this area of interest. And then partially, this is simply a passion of mine um, that uh, developed as I personally began to question um, about 10 years ago or so, uh, my own understanding uh, and began to sort of deconstruct uh, and this developed through a, a friendship with one of my pediatric residents. Um, and so it was sort of a parallel, uh, both professionally and personally. And, and from that, I have uh, have sort of had uh, two, two different um, uh, 
areas of expertise in my practice um, of my um, certification in childhood obesity, as well as my expertise in LGBTQ areas. And I'm a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on um, LGBT wellness. Um, and, and that's a pretty active uh, area of medicine with a lot of a lot going on there. So I first was introduced to you and your work in a um, workshop years ago <laughs> in, um, I believe it was Houston, if I'm not mistaken. And um, your workshop changed my life. Um, as a graduate student, thinking about my own sexuality and gender, I had this whole little theory and I had all these slideshows and these little circles that would move in and out wow. to describe human sexuality and gender. And then I took your, your workshop and that totally blew my little model out of the water <laughs> in a good way. Um, I came from um, a background that was still really, and I think this is still very prominent or prevalent in our culture, but a background that believed the theories of Sigmund Freud, that um, sexuality originated from unhealthy parenting tactics, a dad who was distant and kind of checked out, and a mom who was overbearing. And that kind of understanding made conversion therapy seem like a really good option for my parents and me back when I first came out in the very early 2000s. We had this understanding that sexuality and gender was socialized, that if I had maybe different parents or if my dad was more involved, my mom was more um, willing to let me get dirty and to be tough and to not be so overbearing, that I might have become a different person that I might be somehow straight or um, cisgender, as it were. And so now we have very convincing research, and I'm really thankful for that. But do you mind kind of giving us the, the synopsis, if you will, or kind of the breakdown of what research is telling us in terms of sexuality and gender and brain sexuality, all of those fun things? Yeah, that's great. I, and you know, I didn't realize how impactful that was. So that's really great to hear. Um, so yeah, it's um, this is when uh, it's it's a little harder to describe in words. But um, so what happens um, with with babies um, is that a lot's going on in that period of development as a as a as a child's developing and, um, and it's all happening, um, pretty early. Um, it's also all happening kind of at different times, you know, throughout that nine month period. And, and so I'm going to dangle that here for just a second and come back to it, but just remember that, you know, um, it's not like just poof, the baby develops. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't happen that way. Different things develop at different times, and that will become very important um, as, as um, both for sexuality as well as for gender development. Um, and so there are different parts that are very important uh, for development of both sexuality and gender. And that is that we have um, the outward parts of babies 
um, that's very obvious. Um, and uh, <laughs> that um, if you've ever seen a baby delivered, um, most people, I, I guess, maybe have if you've been in the delivery room, um, but a lot of people maybe have, and I don't know, but, but, um, you know, when a, when a baby's delivered, um, you know, those parts are the first thing that everybody looks at. Is it a boy or is it a girl? You know, is, is there a penis there or is there not? I mean, that's really kind of the first thing. And, and, you know, historically and culturally that's just become the thing that's just the thing um you know I, I don't know how other cultures you know other places do that but that's certainly how our culture does things and we just look and then that information just travels like wildfire Right. Um, like that information gets sent out from the delivery room to the waiting room mm -hmm. through social media like that sure. penis boy gone, <clears throat> you know, well, it turns out <laughs> that there's a little more to sexuality and gender than the penis. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's really kind of the whole gist of things is <laughs> there's just a little more to it than that. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, when you kind of say it like that, it's kind of like, well, yeah, but, but we've kind of developed this whole thing around this one little organ. Like that's all there is to it. That's it. You know, um, you take one look and you're done. One look and you're done. That's it. For sure. Um, but the reality is that on the inside of us, there is so much stuff going on. And what happens inside is that you form um, these, these in, you form the chromosomes first. And that's really what starts everything. The DNA, the little spiral thing, you know, that we all learn about. And that's kind of the, the basis of everything. The chromosomes are kind of where it all starts. And you can have some, some abnormalities from the chromosome level um, that sometimes we can measure, but more often than not, we can't. But then from the chromosomes, then you form the inside sexual organs. And so from that, you'll either get the testes for boys or the ovaries for girls. And then from those parts, the inside sexual parts, or what's called the gonadal sex, you get these hormones released that then direct everything. And they're sort of the directors of sexuality so to speak um and so then that then the magic sort of starts to happen it all starts with the chromosomes and then the chromosomes direct the internal sex organs and then the internal sex organs start to release their sort of magic power and then what is supposed to happen if things are all aligned um, or I should say, I don't know that I should say what's supposed to happen. Let's say what happens most commonly. 
um, is that the external sex organs, and that's what we can see, that's what finally shows up when the baby pops out, <laughs> which is the penis or the vagina, will match with something that we can't see, which is the brain sexuality. And that's something we didn't even really have a word for or a term for, but that's what we feel like. That's really the whole thing. Like our brain is who we are. I mean, that's what the world looks like behind our eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look out and we see everything, <laughs> that's who we are. And, and, and the world kind of looks the same behind our eyes from the time we're first time we can remember it until we're, you know, I'm 56 now and the world looks the same behind my eyes now as it did when I was three from my earliest memory. I mean, that's me, you know, that's, well, that's, that's our brain at work and that's kind of our identity and our view of the world. Well, there's a, there's a brain sex, there's a brain sex version of that. That's our identity of how I view myself as a sexual being uh and then uh and 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 so half of that is my sexuality in terms of who i'm attracted to sexual orientation and then the other half of that is my gender identity and that is do i think i'm a boy or a girl mm-hmm. or neither um and so all of that encompasses the brain sexuality mm-hmm. and you can't see that at all. So when baby pops out, you can see the outer sex organs. You can't see anything on the inside at all. And so what the doctor can see is the results of the chromosomes releasing these sex hormones going towards these internal sex organs and making these outside sex organs. So so the doctor, he or she can look and say, okay, we formed a penis or we formed a vagina. Doctor hopes it lines up. Doesn't know that it lines up. It might or it might not. There's the rub. Well, why wouldn't it? Why would all this not line up? And why are we now starting to find out that so commonly it doesn't always match? Why wouldn't uh, this this little baby with a penis grow up to not be attracted to girls, which is the sexual orientation? Or why would this little baby with a penis grow up to say, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl? Why would that happen? Well, the reason for that um, is that in that time period from from conception to delivery, a nine-month period, back to when I said, hang on to that, I'm going to come back to it. Things are developing, but they don't all develop at the same time. And the time that the brain develops and the time that those external sex parts develop are two different times. Yo, did you hear that? This is a very important fact. The brain's development happens after our genes have started creating a vagina or penis. 
This will be the most important fact today because other puzzle pieces connect to this one. So let me reiterate this piece in just a different way. Your brain, where conscious self-knowing live, where gender identity and sexual orientation can be found, was created and established at a very different time than your sexual organs and on an entirely different train track than your body. While the house is being built with wood and nails on a far-off hill, the decor is being dreamed of and chosen in a small corner of someone's heart and mind. This explains how your queer diversity, your queer truth, was established. I'm getting excited here, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's keep examining one piece at a time. So the sex parts develop first. And so... And, and then the, the brain development develops last. And so there's a lag time in there. And so the completion of everything doesn't really finish until around the third trimester. But the sex parts develops fairly early in the end of the first trimester, early second trimester. And so when you when you go and, and, and get your ultrasounds and all that, you know, about halfway through pregnancy, people are usually able to tell if it's a boy or girl from the ultrasounds. That's looking at those little external parts. Mm-hmm. They look, you know, and everybody's doing a little, you know, a little scavenger hunt there. <laughs> yes. Can we find a penis or not? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it's all about. <laughs> what we can't tell is what's going on with the brain sexuality. What is brain sexuality? So, like the diligent little nerd that I am, I pulled out my notes from Dr. Joni Jack's conference in 2016. In the notes, she describes brain sexuality, but let me recap for just a little bit. As she mentions, the external sexual features of the body, the vagina and the penis for some of us, develop in the first trimester. We don't see brain sexuality until the second and third trimesters. Okay, so with that context ironed out, let's get a solid definition of brain sexuality. Brain sexuality is the unshakable conviction of who you are based on what you know and experience of yourself. This conscious awareness of brain sexuality is housed in various structures of the brain, structures that have been shaped uniquely by their interactions with hormones during your intrauterine development. That means brain sexuality has already shaped the brain. It is the shape of the brain that was developed before you were born. Brain sexuality is in no way tied to, dependent upon, or influenced by the external sexual organs of your body. Brain sexuality is the felt, excuse me, brain sexuality is the felt experience and knowing of your gender identity and sexual orientation. I will add a lot of information to deepen our understanding of brain sexuality, but let's let Dr. Joni unpack a couple of things for us first. She continues by describing for us how brain sexuality might be experienced. I love her words here. What does that little being feel like is happening in there? What does the world look like outside of the, the eyes? What, what does it feel like? What sort of attraction is going to happen? Who will they fall in love with? 
And, and that's the part that's so difficult for people to understand um, that it is all formed before birth. The brain sexuality, the attraction is developed before birth, just like the external sex parts are. It's all formed before birth. It all happens before then. The reason that you don't see it until later is for the same reason that you don't see a lot of things until later. You don't, you don't see the, so for example, um, the, the external sex characteristics that develop at puberty, you don't see them until puberty. It's not time. So you don't really have um, any attraction, true attraction, until it becomes, until you're getting close to puberty. And so those things aren't going to really develop true um, attraction to the same sex or the opposite sex is going to start to ramp up 8, 10, 12 years of age. And so, um, so the size, let's say, uh, of a little boy's, you know, adult secondary sex characteristics, mm-hmm. they're set before he's born. You can't do anything to make his penis be bigger or the child, the eventual adult height of a child. Mm-hmm. You can't really do anything to make that boy or girl be taller. It's set before birth. It's packaged in the DNA, but the expression won't be until, you know, 14, 16, 18 years of age, until they reach the point where all of that reaches its adult expression. So the thing that's very confusing for people to understand is it feels like those things are being chosen because they're being expressed at the appropriate time for them to be expressed. And so it's not that you just decided to be gay. It's that it's not time to be gay (laughs) until you're a teenager. That's just the appropriate time. When it comes to gender, it's a little trickier because the the typical time for for kids to to, um, express their gender is around the age of three. Mm-hmm. And so a cisgender child will be certain that they are a boy or girl, typically by the age of three. And so if you try to tell a four or five-year-old boy that they're a girl, they're going to be really ticked off at you. <laughs> I am not. You know, they're going to really be angry at you. Um, a transgender child, um, part of it's cultural probably. Um, and some of it is that with that crossing, uh, with the crossing of the hormones, there does seem to be a little more fluidity sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so that expression does sometimes come, it seems more often that that comes a little later, that the transgender kids seem to develop their gender identity and be certain of it a little later, which is a little bit of a blessing uh, because it would be awfully hard for us to to make our final decision about transgender kids at the age of four. You know, um, we we would prefer to make it at 10 to 15 uh, in the medical profession, which is usually when we're making it. So, um, so yeah, the, the, but, but, but the other thing is just, I'll throw this in here and we may come back to it is, 
is uh, I think most of your viewers are, uh, or your listeners are, are aware of this, but it's also two different things. So gender identity and sexual orientation are completely two different things. They develop differently in the brain. Um, they develop differently in the body. They express themselves differently. They may be aligned. They may have nothing to do with each other. Um, just apples and oranges. For those of you who might be allies or just getting your feet wet, here are some terms and definitions that might help answer some questions about what Dr. Joni Jack is saying here. Sexual orientation is the involuntary process of experiencing both emotional bondedness and physical arousal in a sexual manner. Sexual orientation is an involuntary process of both the physical and emotional bodies. Sexual identity is nothing more than a name tag we stick to our shirt. The identity we write on our sticker can match our internal sexual orientation, and if we're closeted, it might be what we need people to think about us until we're ready to come out. We call these differences a public sexual identity and a private sexual identity. Sexual orientation and sexual identity, as Dr. Jack has mentioned, is very different than gender identity which can be defined as the conviction a person has about their gender. In this light, gender identity has nothing to do with their physical bodies, for none of us. The sex of a person is a medical term. It is the gender we assign to a person because of their external sexual organs, and it is erroneously based on the body rather than the person's brain sexuality. And while we're at it, cisgender is a term we use to describe a person whose external sexual organs match their brain sexuality. In other words, cisgender is someone whose gender identity, I am female, for example, correlates with their physical body. I have a vagina. Okay, let's get back to it. It sounds like we have three major components that for some people... It's, I always talk about this as though it's a recipe. To be a straight cisgender person, my sex, which is my sexual organs, will match my brain sexuality, and they will, they will quote-unquote match. I will be a male-bodied person who identifies as a male man, and my orientation might be attracted to women. Whereas those three components for someone else might have a totally different recipe. And that is um, a natural biological variant. Those recipes can change and they should change based yes. on medical reasonings. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, and just to, you know, just to confuse it, you know, a little further is just that those individuals who are, who are bisexual or who are fluid, I, we would probably start to say more, a little more fluid now. Um, it, although they can be truly fixed, uh, it's not that these folks are changing their mind back and forth. Right. Um, those of us who are, who have a clear attraction to one or the other, mm -hmm. it, it's like that has developed and then it has sort of closed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and I would place those folks kind of at the end of each side of the spectrum and say that that's kind of unusual to say that you have zero attraction. You know, folks who are completely attracted to one side or the other and zero attraction to the other um, gender are probably a little unusual, actually. Mm-hmm. And then all along the spectrum, you would have varying degrees of people who have small degrees of attraction. Um, you, you might have somebody like myself who was in a marriage for a long time to one sex uh, and then end up end up attracted to the other sex who who it turns out um, has some attraction, but maybe not much, but then a lot of attraction to 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 the other to the same sex. That you have to have some attraction to the opposite sex to to be in a married 30 years. You can't not. Yeah. You can't not have some attraction to be in a marriage for 30 years. You, you, you do. I know. I know that I did. But but the majority of the attraction goes the opposite way. But but it's still kind of fixed, if that makes sense. But true bisexual individuals will describe that their attraction is pretty constant. Like it is not fixed like it is it it is open (laughs) for lack of a better term it remains open it doesn't go back and forth um and and so that's kind of right in the middle and then everybody else kind of falls along the spectrum um and then gender would be i think there would be a corollary with gender of people that would maybe fall right in the middle and would say i don't i don't I don't identify with either gender and then, you know, and then all the way out to this, to the ends who are absolutely your, you know, Tarzan out here, you know, and then maybe Barbie over here. Sure. And then everything in the middle to, you know, throw out some stereotypes there. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope you're enjoying today's show. Like I said, I could geek out about this stuff all day long, every day, but I hope it's liberating some of you to find the confidence and the power to take one more step through homophobia and transphobia. And if you're an allied parent of a queer child, I just want to plug that we have I Am Counsel, a coaching practice full of life coaches to help you navigate the coming out of your queer child. So if you're finding yourself asking, how do I love my child better? And you need some help, give us a call. 720-551-8382. All right, let's get back to the show. One piece of research that I, um, I don't know if you remember this, we went through it a long time ago. It's probably right maybe a couple months after the Houston workshop, but I believe it's called the NeuroFrontier Study. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. I think I had a slide on it, maybe. Mm-hmm. I probably still do. Yeah. One of the things that I remember, so I want to like just make sure that I have this in my, in my memory right, but it's kind of um, the idea that brain sexuality is predominantly created by an androgen bathing in utero. 
And so as the sex chromosomes are doing their thing and DNA is kind of creating the physical structure of our body, hormones, this androgen bathing is kind of setting in motion the brain sexuality of the body. And so we have this very biological variant or this biological component called DNA doing one thing while another biological agent, a very different component, is doing something very different. And those two um, occurrences, those two phenomenon, aren't necessarily correlated. They're not communicating to one another to say, hey, I'm doing this, you should do this. They're doing their own thing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good way to describe that, that it is really two different... Um, yeah, that's a really good way to describe that. And that's um, helpful. Um, it's one of the reasons why it's so helpful to hear. It's one of the reasons why with networking, it's so good to have so many different perspectives um, because I've never heard it described quite that way. Um, but yeah, the DNA is very precise, very, you know, you have one little, you know, one little, everything matches up. Yeah, you know, perfectly precise. But the androgen bathing is sort of, yeah, it's just a bath. It's just like you just sort of, you know, you sort of toss things over here, sort of like a <laughs> nice little bath. Okay, a bath and hormonal bathing. What are we talking about here? Imagine that a little fetus with all the DNA at work, already producing the physical structure of the baby's body, including the external sexual organs. As this little fetus floats in the amniotic sac, a surge of hormones enters the fluid. I imagine it to be like adding a drop of purple dye into a glass of water. The hormones bathe that fetus and influence the ways in which the brain will form different structures of the brain touching the hormones and being influenced, while others don't. Just like the testosterone that might initiate facial hair growth during someone's transition, so too is the brain influenced to grow. The interesting piece is that the hormone is floating in a liquid-filled sac, so the regions of the brain that can be influenced are very random. There are differences in size and weights of particular brain structures that are responsible for gendered behavior, like sexual orientation and gendered self-knowing. Let me give you an example. I told you I can nerd out on this. The hypothalamus in the brain is largely in charge of the timing of our hormones. Inside of the hypothalamus is something called the sexually dimorphic nucleus of the preoptic area. We're going to call this little dude the SDN. The SDN is largely believed to be related to sexual behavior in animals. In male bodies, that being a DNA of XY, this SDN is 2.5 times larger and has 2.2 times the cells than those found in XX people, female bodies or female brains in this example. Again, this has nothing to do with sexual organs. It is a completely different process on a totally different system. So you can see that we're dealing with a very complex puzzle that never replicates itself twice. And during its very own lifespan, the lifespan of the SDN, this sexually dimorphic nucleus, it will grow around age five, it'll shrink at age 50, and then it will grow again at 75. All of this activity is set in stone before our original birthdays. 
This means that sexuality is fluid in more ways than one. I'll add some more layers to this in a second, but let's break our conversation into two categories for a moment. The first one is gender identity, which is created by the influence of three things, hormones, genes, and immunology. And immunology here refers to the way that the body responds to its own hormones over time. The second category is sexual orientation, which is created by the activity of hormones and genes, but also chemicals that a mother may have been exposed to during pregnancy. All of the research also proves that no influences can alter one's gender identity or sexual orientation after birth. The way you were born is the way you will forever be. With a variety of factors at play, it is no wonder then that our sexuality and experiences of gender are fluid. I know I keep saying that. Brain sexuality, as it were, is created in a literal fluid sack by floating fluids in a physical environment that is very fluid. Sexual orientation and gender identity are truly the result of one complex recipe. I'm going to leave this here and I'll pick it up in a moment. It's sort of like a left brain, right brain, kind of like you've got your science and your art, you know, mm-hmm. and that, you know, that that's a pretty good description of our bodies, of, of our, of what happens within us as humans. Those two things coexist a lot within us. And so, you know, I think it's a good thing to sort of contemplate that, um, that those things happen inside of us, even as we develop you know, that, that we are, um, uh, sort of expressed, uh, differently, even as we're made, you know, that, that we, but, but we have to recognize that and, and, um, be willing to sort of, um, not accept the consequences of it. Maybe, maybe flip that around, um, as I've tried to say, you know, in, in one of my blog posts and, and, and recognize that as sort of an unfolding miracle that sexuality is, you know, we don't, we don't know what's going to come out of us Mm -hmm. at any given moment, but it's pretty darn cool. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's just wait and see, you know, and, and just celebrate it, uh, as some, some, result of this bath over here, you know? Um, yeah, but that's a great description. I like that a lot. I'm going to have to go back and yeah, I'm going to pull that up and, and think about that a little bit more. I like that. The only reason I, I like thinking about this is when we have a concerned parent, you know, my child, let's say little Lucas is now coming and telling me they want to be called Sarah. What do I do? And what is this? And it's peer pressure and all the things that an afraid parent might say. I really like to sit down with them and talk about this as though it has nothing to do with the political agenda, but more about understanding the biology of the human body. Mm -hmm. That from the very beginning, the chromosomes took on their job and they started executing and building according to their precise instructions penis, testes, so forth and so on. Then during week six or week 12, this bathing happens that really establishes the brain sexuality that has nothing to do with what the genes are doing. And so for some of these kiddos, the brain sexuality might say, I am female, even though the DNA is encoding, I am 
sexually male. And so those are very, two very distinct processes. And I like thinking or describing it this way because I, I think it really helps parents, one, take the pressure off of themselves and culture as though they did something wrong. They didn't protect their son in his development. But it also provides a lot of freedom for these parents and the kiddos to say, my expression at three and eight and 10 and 25 and 42 is a natural expression of how my biology was fastened together, how it all played out. And so when I express myself, I'm not expressing the effects of a distant father and overbearing mother. I'm expressing what happened way before I even met my mom and dad. Right. Yeah, exactly. And very often those sort of stereotypes, um, they, they, you know, they're not as common as we think they are, but they are, a, they're common ish. Mm-hmm. They're more of a, a, of a response often to a child who is not reacting or is not turning out quite the way that we wanted this boy to act right right and how does a how how do parents often behave Mm -hmm. how do evangelical let's say parents often behave when presented with a child who is not conforming Mm -hmm. well the dad often becomes more and more overbearing and the mom often becomes more and more protective I mean, that, that is what often happens. And so, so it's the chicken versus the egg sort of thing. And, and that is just simply, you know, we, we just got it turned around. And we do that a lot, that we, we attribute causation to something that's simply either, either it's turned around or maybe it's a coincidence or, you know, it's very common for those things to happen that we, we see two things that go together and we just apply a cause to it. Um, when it comes to the name, you know, I, I see so much, um, you know, emotions around, um, with the parents who, who are so, so, so upset over the child wanting to be called a different name. And, and, uh, and it's interesting because I'll have parents in my office that will describe themselves as affirming or, or say they're really supportive and they'll thank me. I, I, I had a, a parent just a couple of weeks ago who who thanked me for asking what pronouns her son, uh, female to male son, wanted, but then continued over and over and over and over again to use the, the dead name and continued to say she. Mm-hmm. To the point that finally, I didn't at the initial visit only because I was just still getting to know them a little bit. I was trying to, but then finally at the second visit, you know, I was kind of reading her son's body language and, and, and then finally I just said, can I ask a direct question? You know, I, I asked the preferred pronouns and, and I think you said he is, and he said, yes. And, and she said, and I keep saying she, and and saying the old name. And I said, yeah, I said, well, what, what is that? You know? And, and then I can't remember what show when they were together, but then after, and then they kind of got into a little bit of a tiff and then he very quickly said, where's the bathroom? And then he left. 
And then, you know, we had a, a little bit of a discussion alone. Um, and there's always a, a lot going on there. But one of the things that I, and I won't share any more about that because it's kind of a confidential discussion, but, but one of the things that I try to share um, in those moments is to say, with, if I can, to have both parties present, to say, you know, that name to the, to the child, the old name feels pretty offensive, it feels like. You know, and I'll, I'll usually clarify, am I saying this right? You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but I've often been told that old name feels offensive. It feels like a, you know, fingers on a chalk, on a chalkboard. Like, um, the new name feels to you like freedom, like a new pathway. And, you know, it feels there's a lot tied to it, you know. Um, to you, that old name was something that you thought about, maybe, you know, depending on their religious affiliation, maybe prayed about you, you know, this was a huge deal. You chose that name. So when you choose a different name, that feels like not just a rejection of the name, but a rejection of you. So there's a lot going in here with name. And so that's you get to choose that but let's understand here that that when because often the parents are saying you're just choosing a name as a as a political thing or you're just trying to do this emotional thing and then i'll say but but there's a lot of emotion attached to it for you too (laughs) this is emotional on both sides okay you pick the name first you're picking the name second let's both understand that there's a lot of power in a name and that's okay let's just feel it let's just feel that emotion it's okay if it hurts you for her to not want to be called that it's okay if it hurts her for you not to want to be called that it's okay the pain is okay but this is what he's asked and so we've agreed to do that Okay, but let's take a step back and understand why are we doing that? And that's when I get to what you've talked about. And so it's just to kind of say, let's not just put all this. We're just pulling these emotional things on the kid because I I want parents to understand you. You're pulling emotions here, too. Like we're there's emotions on both sides, but but it's now the kid's turn to get to pick just is, you know, they get to pick. Um, and yes, it hurts. And yes, it's hard. But they they've done hard for a long time. They've done hard pretty much ever since they've been in their body. Um, and so the one thing they do get to pick now is their name. And we're gonna let them do that. So so let's let's go with that. Okay, yep, it's hard. It is. But we get to do it. So let's let's settle that. Acknowledge that it's hard, but you get to pick. Now let's talk about why are we picking, and then we just move on. <laughs> and then in my office, at least, you know, I correct them pretty much every time, you know, and 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 set that tone and say, in here, we've made that decision that you are he, 
and you are, you know, whatever the name is, we've made that. Do we all agree on that? Can we make that agreement? You know, mm-hmm. I just feel like, you know, if we can't do anything else, okay. we can call you by your correct name. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know? Right. So yeah. I, I always talk about it with parents as though they're, um, they've been basing their opinions and perceptions of what they can see of the kid. And when a child says, I want you to use they, them, or a different pronoun in a new chosen name, what they're asking us is not to align somehow with a new political agenda, but they're asking us to internalize a perception that matches their perception. I need you to internalize that now I am going by these pronouns because my brain sexuality tells me that I'm not female, I'm actually male. And I need you to internalize that just as much as I know that. Yeah. Yeah. And wow, what a hard step that is, you know, to, to take that step, to ask someone else to do that. It's a, it's a hard step to take and it's, it's ask and it's an, it's honoring, you know, it's honoring that person, um, by trusting them and trusting them with that request. Um, because generally only a few people are even asked or, or let into that space. And so, yeah, it's like, um, so yeah. Yeah. I have one more question. Okay. Maybe maybe we can, doesn't have to be long, but with the androgen bathing, there's all this androgen floating around in the, in the, um, you know, in utero. Do we know what that androgen is doing to the brain? Do we know if it's changing size of anatomy? Is it shaping neurons? Is it creating neural pathways differently? Yeah, well, we we know um, we don't have enough studies, unfortunately. Um, and this is where, particularly in the trans literature, um, we, we're woefully lacking. Um, and hopefully we'll we'll get more of that. But but I'll give you a little path to sort of travel down if you're interested in a little more of this. And that is um, so congenital adrenal hyperplasia is uh, is a condition where um, you get and what's called androgenation and androgenization. Um, and females will get overexposed to androgens um, so that so that they'll they will come out um appearing to be males essentially sometimes and um and and so we've learned from this condition um sort of what happens or what can happen and and we've and we've um this will happen sometimes if you have um, female male twins. Um, the females can get sort of a, a dose of 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 um, of sort of androgenization from the male twin, and then when that happens, both with the congenital adrenal hyperplasia as well as when you have male female twins those female infants we do have a little more incidence of uh both um uh now you can't i mean you 
it's silly to say you can't quote me seeing as how I'm on podcast here, but um, you can quote me, um, but it might not be accurate <laughs> um, because I don't know the exact numbers. But the point is you have increases in um, both sexual orientation as well as gender changes in those infants. And so basically the point is when you have more male hormones on board from either uh, a, a sort of a disease or, or just increased um, male hormones on board that affects both sexuality and gender. It's not enough to, you know, there hasn't, the problem with these things are you can't just do out and out studies. You're not going to just take little babies in utero and throw hormones at them. So you can't do controlled studies. And so what you have to do to study these things are you have to look at other disorders that are similar and then try to apply corollaries. And so that's what's happened. You, you take corollaries like CAH or like when you have increased hormones from male fetuses and things like that. And so, um, and then you try to, to extrapolate that out and get big and bigger numbers and things like that. And so, so that's where I would say probably the biggest weak links are in the trans literature is that those little paths haven't been followed far enough. I grew up with the erroneous narrative that we are tabula rosa, a clean and impressionable slate when we are born. Taking Freud's outdated theory that the overbearing mother and the aloof father produce a homosexual child left me believing that I was just a product of my surrounding. But as we now have proof, that is literally the furthest thing from the truth. Talk about a Freudian slip that has left our socio-political world full of hatred, disdain, and mostly fear. I wanted to present today's research with Dr. Joni Jack because I wanted us to be fortified with the truth about our development, our bodies, our preferences, and of course, our authentic desire. I want you to know that you were literally born with all of the functions of your brain solidified before the day you were born. And I hope that this truth stands like a pillar of confidence within you. I present the medical research and its findings today because they have major implications when we critique laws like those imposed in Florida, Idaho, Indiana, and Texas. We would never make it illegal for a parent to have a child with brown eyes to criminalize parents who seek medical help for a diabetic child, and we certainly wouldn't ban the word autistic from classrooms. With fervor, certainty, and conviction, we would defend those children and their parents because we know that those medical dispositions have scientific credibility. Medical research protects their intrauterine development and the sheer humanity that they come with. So it is my hope that this research gives us the same fervor, certainty, and conviction. Now that we have empirical data to prove that sexual orientation and gender identity are biologically driven, it is clear that anti-queer laws are current forms of bigotry resting on archaic ways of thinking. The fallacy and stupidity of the lobotomy, bloodlating, and genocide, and eugenics all have a dark and embarrassing past. Their defenders are characterized in history books by ridicule and shamefulness. As medical research makes its way to the main political stage, bigoted lawmakers will face the same dark and embarrassing past, but only in future times. So until then, 
until we have major reform, justice, and systemic equality, hold the confidence of your recipe with an empowered pride, a stable dignity, and an intelligent rebuttal. Because I believe it is seriously pathetic that laws are being implemented to do nothing more than to denigrate fetal development. There is nothing pro-life about that. Here are some random quotes from the medical research that I thought would be really interesting for you to leave with. The origin of gender identity and sexual orientation are based on the fact that the differentiation of sexual organs, the vagina and the penis, happens way before the sexual differentiation of the brain. As the two processes are happening at the same time, it is easy to see that they take different routes. Since this is the case, research says, one might expect to find in trans people female sexual organs and male brain structures or vice versa. Here's another quote. All observations support the neurobiological origin of gender identity is based on the sizes, the neuron numbers, and the functions and connectivity of brain structures, not the sex of their sexual organs, not their birth certificates, nor their passports. Here are some fun quotes that I'd like you, or maybe some snippets. Male homosexuality is tied to a gene called XQ28. Mothers with gay sons had changes in their X chromosomes at some point. In general, a genome-wide screening did identify a number of chromosomal regions that need to be investigated further as they seem to be tied to the development of same-gender attractions. The hormone levels in certain cases, like girls with CAH, turn out in higher rates as queer people than girls without CAH. And assigned females at birth... If your mother took a medicine to prevent miscarriages between 1939 and 1960, you also have a higher risk of being queer. And ladies, if your mother was exposed to nicotine, amphetamines, or a thyroid gland hormone, your chances of being lesbian increases. And for all the people assigned male at birth, if you have older brothers, your chances of being queer are higher. And men, if your mother was super stressed when you were born, your chances of being gay increases as well. Yo, it is clear. We have plenty of work to do. But let's start with ourselves. Let's sit in continuous confidence that we are perfect just the way we are. Spread the word. Teach it to your friends. Help uneducated parents learn. Together, let's rewrite the narrative and teach the world the truth. To all the queers in states and parts of the world where you are not legally protected, I hope today's episode gives you just the courage and confidence you need to stand firm. And if you know someone who needs to hear this, please share the information. It changed my life and you might just do that for someone else. With a warm heart and a sincere love for you all. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I am clinic create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I am clinic. That's I am clinic. 